0: Thank you so much, Harry. That is, without question, uh, the greatest blessing of my life. Thank you for mentioning that. It's a joy to be with you tonight, and it's a joy to address the topic that we're going to be looking at. It's, It's not so much an easy topic as it is a pertinent one. In fact, there are times when, as a preacher, you preach on a text or on a particular topic, and... And you know that there are people sitting underneath the teaching of God's word for whom it may not be immediately and directly applicable. This would not be one of those nights. So we want to study together what Proverbs has to say about human sexuality. Karen Kaplan, writing in the LA Times, summarized the results of an extensive study that was done by the University of Chicago comparing the sexual attitudes and behaviors of your generation with previous ones. Here are some of the results. The survey asked if premarital sex is morally acceptable. When they asked baby boomers that question when they were between the ages of 18 and 29, 47% of baby boomers said yes, premarital sex is acceptable. Gen Xers were asked at the same age And 50% of them agreed with that question. 62% of your peers believe that premarital sex is okay. When it comes to same-sex relationships, in the early 1990s, somewhere between, and the the surveys differ, but somewhere between 11 and 16% of the general population were accepting of homosexual relationships. In 1993, there was a huge spike in the acceptability of homosexuality. It jumped suddenly to 22% of the general population in 1993. By 2012, 44% of the general population approved, but 56% of your peers approve of homosexuality. What about uncommitted casual sex 35% of Gen Xers admitted to having sex with someone other than a boyfriend girlfriend or spouse truly casual in the grossest sense when they were in their late teens or 20s 35% of Gen Xers 45% of your peers admit to such an encounter yours is also the first generation growing up in a world that is saturated by internet pornography. And your peers have become increasingly accepting of it. 2014 study by the Public Religion Research Institute found that 45% said it's morally acceptable. And it has become a practice as well. A Barna survey discovered that 27% of your peers were exposed to pornography before puberty. And 57% of your peers seek out porn once to twice a month. They seek it out. They go looking for it on the internet. I, what I w- want you to see from those results is that you live in a culture, we all live in a culture that is thoroughly pagan in its views of sex. And it utterly lacks all biblical wisdom about this issue. They are, as Dr. MacArthur reminded us last night, fools. But if you have learned Christ, if If you have come to see the wisdom that is in Christ, then that's not you. You are commanded to have not the mind of the age in which you live, but the mind of Christ Himself about these issues. In fact, there's an interesting expression in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, Don't allow your thinking to be pushed into the the mold of the mindset of the age and that's a real temptation because of the age in which you live and so it's important for us to come back to the scripture this week we're considering the wisdom that we can gain from the book of proverbs and that's where we want to gain wisdom about this issue tonight in the first six verses of the book of proverbs Solomon lays out his purpose chapter 1 verses 1 through 6 and in fact he summarizes those purposes in just one verse chapter 1 verse 2 to know wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding Two results proverbs will give its careful students first of all the the second part of verse 2 tells us that it will give you if you study this book if it becomes yours in the truest sense you will be able to have the mental capacity to discern the sayings of understanding. In other words, to digest the the wisdom of the sages. In other words, Proverbs will teach you how to think. It will give you a mental capacity. But it will also give you a moral capacity. You'll notice the first half of verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction instruction is a word that's used most frequently in this book for oral instruction that's Solomon's method he's giving lectures just like you sit in all the time that's what we get in Proverbs oral instruction his method and wisdom summarizes his goal as Dr. MacArthur reminded us last night this word wisdom literally means skill In fact it's used that way in a number of non theological contexts For example, in Psalm 107, we're told that sailors caught in the worst storm of their lives came to their wisdom's end. In other words, their skill's end. They had no skills remaining to address the violence of that storm. So it means skill. In the context of Proverbs, it's the skill necessary to live in the daily routines of life in a way that honors God. Now tonight, I want us to consider one of the primary lessons of Proverbs, and that is the danger of sexual sin and the blessing of sexual purity. In the first nine chapters of this book, there are a series of lectures, and in those lectures, Solomon devotes three of them to this very issue. The first two are found in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Tonight, I want us to examine his fourth and climactic lesson, and it's in the seventh chapter. In fact, it's the entire seventh chapter. This will be a challenge for me. I preached one verse last Sunday in my church, and we're going to cover 27 tonight. So, buckle up, here we go. The point of this chapter is stated in verse 5. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 5. He says, What I'm going to teach you will keep you from an adulteress from the foreigner who flatters with her words. In other words, let me summarize it this way. God gave us, through the wisdom of Solomon, this chapter to protect us from using God's good gift of sexuality with anyone other than our spouse. The biblical wisdom that we will find in this chapter will protect you from sexual sin, both lust in the heart and acting out on that lust with your body. This chapter is unique because here, Solomon actually exposes sexual sin's tactics so that we can recognize them and be on our guard against them. Now, before we look at the chapter itself, I have to tell you there are two earlier Old Testament texts in the law that serve as the foundation for this chapter you need to have them in mind so let me just remind you of them number one the Old Testament text that stands behind this is in the creation narrative Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh while that concept of one flesh involves more than sex and marriage it does include sex and marriage in other words what that text tells us in Genesis the book of beginnings is that sex was created by God himself he designed it to be enjoyed exclusively between a man and his wife in marriage I wish we had time to go to Proverbs 5 and and to see how it celebrates the exhilaration of married love this was part of God's original design in fact it's the only place in the scripture where you're told it's okay to get drunk with the love of your spouse another key text in the law so the first text that that really informs Proverbs 7 is that creation narrative Genesis 2 the other key text in the law that informs this chapter is the seventh commandment Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 you shall not commit adultery Now, I think you understand that that commandment, like the other nine, simply summarizes an entire category of life and reminds us that God, in fact, has supreme authority over that category. So in other words, the seventh commandment isn't merely a prohibition against adultery. The seventh commandment is there as a placeholder to remind you that God created the gift of human sexuality he has a right to tell us how to use it and he intends that it be used solely and enjoyed solely in the context of marriage now with those two texts from the law in mind let's look more closely at Proverbs chapter 7 now in verses 1 through 5 we discover the prologue to the story. We're going to get to the story, but let's just see the prologue and make sure we know where we're going. Solomon begins this lecture, like he begins most of them, with a call to listen. Verse 1, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Notice this chapter is not merely a story, it's commandments. We are to, notice how he puts it, we're to store these commandments and words up as a treasure and to keep them. The word here is to guard them. Probably a reference to thinking about it, meditating on these issues, perhaps even memorizing them. Verse 2 explains why we must keep or obey these commands. Notice verse 2. Keep my commandments and live When it comes to sexual sin, make no mistake, your very life is at stake. Not only can it destroy your life here, but if sexual sin becomes a pattern of your life, then it threatens you with eternal death. In light of what's at stake then, verse 2 goes on to say, keep my teaching as the apple or pupil of your eye pupil of your eye is the is the most sensitive, the most delicate part of your body, and it's also the most precious. Why? Because it lets you see the outside world, exposes you to the outside world. What we will learn in this chapter should be as important to you as protecting your eyes. Because it allows you to see the world as it really is. To see the danger and avoid it. To live In biblical wisdom number verse 3 says bind them on your fingers that is let these truths change and shape your behavior and write them on the tablet of your heart let these truths leave an indelible impression on your heart let them so affect the governing center of your person that they change your character verse 4 say to wisdom you are my sister and call understanding your intimate friend at the very least that means consider these truths like family but Solomon uses that expression you are my sister of his new bride in Song of Solomon and so it's likely here and many commentators see it as as simply meaning this rather than have a one-night stand with an immoral person marry wisdom love these truths Hold them close. Verse 5 In order that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Do you see what Solomon is saying? This chapter, learned and loved and treasured and obeyed, will protect you from the sexual sin that will destroy your life. Now, having finished the prologue, beginning in verse 6 and running down through verse 23. The drama unfolds. Solomon has already warned about sexual sin, as I said, in two lectures so far, but now he does so in a narrative that illustrates the tragic path that sexual sin often follows. So let's watch the story as it unfolds. Here's the heart of what we want to see together tonight, and it begins in verses six through nine with a naive victim. A naive victim. Verse 6. For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice. Here he is in his home in the city, in the vantage point of his window, he watches this sad scene unfold. This is typical of city homes of that time. There were two stories typically, and for security, the lower story had no windows the second floor windows were simple openings covered by either wooden or metal lattice this provided privacy for the family but allowed them to witness all the things that unfolded on the street below this is what he saw verse 7 I saw among the naive and I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense now notice that Solomon describes this person in three ways he was among the youths, literally among the sons, and he was a young man. This points to his age. He was, he was your age, essentially. And it also points to the fact that he lacked life experience. He hadn't been able to, to really get a feel for how all the world worked at this point. But more than youth, there was another problem with this guy. Verse, the verse says he was naive. That's a... a word that occurs often in the book of Proverbs. It describes those who lack wisdom, fools, those who have not yet come to a firm commitment to the right way. In fact, the, the root of this word speaks of being wide open like a door, wide open to everything so that, so that they're easily led astray. Proverbs 14:15 says, "The naive believes everything." And they don't perceive danger in their circumstances Chapter 23 verse 2 or I'm sorry, chapter 22 verse 3 says this The prudent sees the evil and hides himself But the naive go on and are punished for it They don't see, they don't understand They don't see any danger So he was not only young, he was naive Verse 7 also describes him, notice, as lacking sense doesn't mean he was stupid it means that he seriously lacked the discernment to see the reality behind the events as they unfolded now Solomon watched this young man verse 8 passing through the street near her corner and he takes the way to her house there is no evidence here in this chapter that this guy is looking for this woman or for someone like her She's the one who pursues him, and she has to persuade him to become involved with her. Instead, the picture is of someone aimlessly strolling through the city, finds himself at the wrong place, the corner near this immoral woman's house and on the road that passed by where she lived. You say, what reference does this story have to to me and to today? it couldn't be more exact. Because this guy is exactly like those today who, for example, aimlessly surf the internet and then are shocked when they suddenly find themselves hunted by the immoral men and women who work in the porn industry. He's like those who aimlessly stroll through life, unaware of the dangers all around them, and then are surprised to find themselves the target of, of an immoral person Looking to satisfy their lust. Listen, Solomon says, Don't be naive. Don't be an easy target. Verse 9 tells us when this tragic scene unfolded in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. Those Hebrew expressions are likely synonyms all describing the same period of time, the time between sunset and complete and total darkness. This is no allegorical statement. It it literally was getting dark, but there is, just like that statement in John where it says Judas went out and it was dark, there, there is a foreboding in this. This darkness seems to to picture beforehand the moral darkness of the woman that we will meet and the dark fate that awaits this young man not only was he in the wrong place but he was there at the wrong time because darkness is always the preferred time for evil including sexual sin Shakespeare was right he said light listen to this light and lust are deadly enemies shame folded up in blind concealing night when most unseen then most doth tyrannize. Can I just plead with you students to learn now at this stage of your life there are specific times and situations when you will be most tempted to sexual sin learn what they are and set up a guard against them. This young man unwittingly finds himself at the wrong place, at the wrong time. Darkness is falling. There's a naive victim. In verses 10 through 12, we meet, secondly, a cunning seducer. We've met the hunted. Now we meet the hunter. We've seen the prey, and now we see the predator. Now let me, let me make clear to you that there are times, and I've seen this as a pastor, there are times when two people set out equally committed to engaging in sexual sin. But often, one is more the naive victim and the other the cunning seducer. And I plead with you to remember that both roles can be played by men or women. And in today's world, both roles are increasingly played by members of the same sex now since Solomon is warning his sons here in the book of Proverbs in this story the role of seducer is played by a woman but ladies as we work our way through this it's perfectly legitimate for you to reverse the sex of the predator and the prey because this story happens the other way around often as well verse 10 And behold, this is how he begins to introduce us to this seducer. Look, he says, look what happens. A woman comes to meet him. Literally, the Hebrew text says she comes out to face him, she's chosen him as her prey, dressed as a harlot. We really can't be sure all that that meant in those days. Perhaps like Tamar back in Genesis 38, it involved a veil to somehow shield her identity. But we know this, it certainly means that she dressed in a seductive way that exposed her body and suggested that her body could be his very easily. Bruce Waltke in his commentary writes this, her outward dress which seems to promise her victim her body, conceals her secret intention to gratify her own lusts. Now, before we go much further, we need to identify who this woman is. Who is she? Well, notice back in verse 5, she's described, literally in the Hebrew text, as the strange woman and the foreigner. Now, We see these terms defined back in chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2, verse 16. The same terms are used and explained here. The word strange, first of all, uh, you see it again here in verse 16. The first reference there is the strange woman. That word for strange comes from a Hebrew word that means to turn aside or to deviate. This woman has turned from something. But from what? Look at verse 17. She leaves, she abandons or turns away from the companion of her youth, her husband. And she forgets, by the way, that's not like I forgot where I left my car keys. She, the Hebrew idea is she wipes her memory of the covenant of her God. The covenant that she made before God in marriage now the second expression there in verse 16 the adulteress, is is the other expression literally the foreigner this is not a reference to her ethnicity Jewish people could marry foreign spouses provided those spouses left their paganism and embraced Israel's God Rahab and Ruth are both wonderful examples of that the idea here is that this woman was a foreigner in the sense that she was an outsider. And this is what you find in the book of Proverbs. She is outside the community of the true worshipers of Yahweh, and she is outside the community of the wise. Now you understand who she is. And let me tell you this. It is so important that you understand our world, your world, is filled with people who have abandoned the companion of their youth, people who refuse to be satisfied by sex and marriage, and they have wiped out their memory of any responsibility they have to God. And like this woman, they are always looking for prey to gratify their own lusts. Back in chapter 7, Solomon adds in verse 10 that she is cunning of heart. Literally, she's guarded of heart. She's secretive. Derek Kidner writes in his commentary, outwardly, I love this, outwardly, she keeps nothing back. She's dressed to kill. Inwardly, she gives nothing away. She hides everything. She hides her real motives to exercise her sensual power and control and to indulge her own lusts. She hides her real thoughts. She feigns faithfulness to her husband. She feigns attraction to this young man. She uses both but loves neither. She hides her real relationship to God. As we'll see in a moment, she pretends spiritual interest, but she has nothing genuinely spiritual about her at all. She is cunning, she knows what she wants, and she knows how to get it. Please understand, there are people around you who are just like this woman. Solomon says, be on your guard. Verse 11, she is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. Rebellious refers to both her relationship to God, choosing a life of sexual sin, and to her husband. Boisterous is a fascinating word. It it describes a confused mix of, of loudness and perpetual motion that keeps her constantly away from her home. Verse 12, she's now in the streets, now in the squares. And lurks. That, that word means to lie in wait in ambush by every corner. She prowls and she stalks for every promising target. This is the cunning seducer. So we've seen the naive victim, the cunning seducer, but now we come to what I think is the most helpful part of the story because what Solomon explains next will protect you from being the target of such a person, whether that person is male or female, whether that person comes at you in person or on a computer screen. Because Solomon reveals, thirdly, the typical tactics. The typical tactics. Verses 13 to 21. Listen, when you are confronted by sexual sin, it will come at you with the same tactics... Oh, yeah, in modern context, it'll be different than the story we're reading here in the sense that it won't have all the same same bells and whistles and street corners, but it will come at you exactly the same way. Proverbs wants you to see, even feel, the seduction as you read in order to protect you from experiencing it firsthand. So let's look at the tactics that sexual sin will always come at you using. Tactic number one, aggressiveness. Aggressiveness. In verse 13, we pick up the narrative from verse 10. Having come out to face this woman, or having come out rather to face this man, verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. Her bold approach mirrors her bold attire. Probably never having met this man before, it's a city, there's no indication they knew each other. She walks up to him, she grabs him, and kisses him, presumably on the lips. Listen, sexual temptation often comes with shocking aggressiveness. It comes like an invasion. It comes when you're not expecting it. This can and does, and I promise this will happen to you in person. I was rehearsing with my wife and reminding her that while I don't think a lot about my past, I was was reflecting that while, I mean, you can look at me and tell that I'm not exactly God's gift to women, okay? But, But there have been four or five times in my life when I have been approached just this aggressively. It's probably happened to you, and if it hasn't, it will. Because this is how sexual sin comes. It comes with an aggression, like an invasion. But let me tell you that I think the most frequent way in our generation that you will be aggressively confronted sexually is on the internet. Whether it's something that pops up unwanted in a Google search that you make, or whether it's something you intentionally hunt for, I can promise you this, that person in that picture or in that video will come at you intentionally with an aggressiveness intended to catch you off guard, to paralyze you while you are sucked into the trap. It's like the cuttlefish, perhaps you've read about it. An amazing creature that God made whose skin contains millions of pigment cells. And he's able to change those pigment cells moment by moment in order to create ever-changing patterns and colors and it uses that amazing light show that it creates underwater to hypnotize its prey as it approaches for the kill this is exactly how sexual sin often works one of its favorite tactics is aggression a direct bold shocking frontal attack and if you're not aware of that and you don't understand that and you're not prepared to respond Rightly you become easy prey A second tactic That sexual sin Comes at us with Is rationalization Rationalization Verse 13 Says and with a brazen face She says to him A brazen face Is literally She hardened her face She hardened her face She is brazen, impudent, shameless. And then she goes on to tell a brazen lie. With a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today, I have paid my vows. She tries to hide her lust in the disguise of religious motivation. Listen, I'm all here about the peace offerings that I've offered. In ancient Israel, you could offer a peace offering for one of three reasons. You could as an expression of thanksgiving, as a free will offering to just express your general love and, and appreciation to God, or thirdly, you could express a peace you could offer a peace offering rather as thanks for deliverance in conjunction with the making of a vow. What's interesting about the peace offering is it was the only sacrifice in which the worshiper ate some of the meat in a fellowship meal, is how it was supposed to to communicate with the priests, with your guests, and the idea was, it's like there was a a chair at the table for God himself. You were having a, a meal with God, peace offering. But the Mosaic Law made one very important stipulation. If you were going to eat that meat as part of the peace offering, it had to be eaten the same day it was sacrificed. So you see what she's telling this young man? She says, listen, I offered a peace offering today at the temple. As the fulfillment, notice she says, of not just one vow, but many vows. It's getting dark. The day's almost over. I need you to come and eat this meal with me. Now, you understand, she's not just offering him a free meal. If he doesn't already know it, he's gonna know it in a minute because she's gonna tell him it's about sex. So understand this, this talk about a peace offering isn't the reason for her inviting him, it's the excuse. It's a way that she's giving him that he can rationalize Coming to this woman's house and eventually having sex with her. Students, don't be naive. Don't fall for the religious ploy, the spiritual ploy. I've seen it happen. I've seen people come with members of my church to church saying, Oh, yeah, we want to know about the Lord. We're here because of the Lord. They're predators. If someone tries to convince you they are interested in spiritual things, but they are after your body, don't believe them. They are just like this woman. The point I want you to see, however, is that sexual sin always tries to get you to rationalize. It goes like this. Well, yes, we're not married. That's true, but we love each other. Well, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? Listen, God is okay with my sexual desires because he made me this way. Listen, we we know it's wrong, but it'll just be just, just one time. Rationalization. A third tactic of sexual sin is flattery. Flattery, verse 15. Therefore, I have come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. Go back to verse 5. It describes this woman, notice, as one who flatters with her words. Literally, her words are smooth. What she says is both slippery on the one hand and seductive on the other. But down in verse 15, we learn that she uses her smooth words to flatter notice therefore I have come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly literally the the Hebrew text reads I came out to face you to seek diligently your face she implies she was looking specifically for him and that it was his good looks that attracted her Then she adds, and I found you. You're the one. You're the only one I want. This is such an important warning. Understand this about your heart, just as it's true of my heart and every other heart. Often the greatest trap of sexual sin is not even the seducer's beauty or appearance, but their appeal to our pride. And make no mistake, if someone is after your body, he or she will tell you whatever it is they, they think you want to hear. Whatever flattery will get what they want. I have never loved anyone like I love you. I wanna spend the rest of my life with you. We'll get married soon. but it's all built on flattery, smooth, deceptive, deceitful words, just a desire to indulge their lust, and you're the the prey. A fourth tactic is sensuality, sensuality. The temptation to sexual sin always comes with an appeal to one or more of the physical senses, sight, smell, touch, in this case, she appeals to them all. Having flattered his ego, she now attempts to stimulate his sexual appetite by this sort of sensual vision of what is at her home. Verse 16, I have spread my couch with coverings, with covered, colored linens of Egypt. The, the word couch here, by the way, is a word that's used both for a place to recline, to eat a meal, as well as a place to recline to sleep. I think she undoubtedly means both here. She's covered her couch. She has coverings on it, both to make it soft, but also to make it beautiful and luxurious. Notice the linens of Egypt. These were a luxury. They had to be imported. And in a time when dyes were expensive and rare, her bed linens were a rich red. Her husband... The one to whom she's being unfaithful had cared for her will. Then she tries to stimulate him through aphrodisiac fragrances. Notice verse 17. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. All three of those fragrances are connected with sexual love in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 14. She says, I have perfumed my bed with these precious aromatic perfumes. These were perfumes that were Really hard to get. Very expensive. They can only be purchased from merchants who had traveled from outside the country. Only the wealthiest could afford them. Here's the point. Sexual sin and the one behind the temptation to sexual sin will always appeal to your physical senses. Try to break down your resistance by attacking your physical senses. Try to get you in a situation where what you see and perhaps what you smell and the intimacy of physical closeness and touch will cause you to give in. Be on guard. Sensuality is how sexual sin comes. A fifth tactic of sexual sin is secrecy. Secrecy. In verse 18, she abandons all pretense now and just directly propositions him. Come, she says. That calls for a decision. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. The Hebrew text is very picturesque. It says, let us be saturated with loves until the morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. And then she comes to her final argument. Verses 19 and 20, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. Now, what she's promising here is privacy, secrecy. She says, listen, my husband is a great distance away. He's on a long journey. And he's on a very important trip, an important business trip, That means there's no chance he'll return early. He's taking a bag of money with him. And in fact, he will return in two weeks. At the full moon, he will come home. If, as it appears, she offered her sacrifice at the new moon, then he will return at the full moon. That means he'll be gone a couple more weeks. Now, please get what's going on here. Notice she does not try to persuade him at this point, that what she's inviting him to do is right. She tries to persuade him instead that there will be no consequences. She's saying, there's nothing to fear. This is the lie that sexual sin always comes to us with. It promises privacy. It promises secrecy. It will try to convince you that you will get away with it. No one will ever know. There are no consequences. This is one of Satan's favorite tactics, has been since the garden. Remember, he's the one who said to Eve, you will certainly not die. There are no consequences. Compare that to what God says. Look back at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom? and his clothes not be burned? Can you, can you grab a piece of burning wood from a fire and hold it against your chest and not be burned? Can you walk on hot coals <coughs> excuse me, and your feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Listen, it's going to happen. <clears throat> Verse 29 goes on to say, whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Whoever will not go unpunished. Numbers 32, 23 says, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. In other words, you will face the consequences of that sin. Psalm 90, verse 8 says, God, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence listen that thing that promises you secrecy and privacy that sexual sin to which you have given in and sort of treated as okay as if you can get away with it it stands in the blazing light of God's presence psalm 139 verse 11 if I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night even the darkness is not dark to you. God saw it all. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Oh, God God sees. And there, there are consequences. There's no secrecy. First Thessalonians 4, 6. Paul, talking to believers, says, Make sure no man transgress and defraud his brother in the manner of sexual sin. He's talking to Christians now. He's talking, he says, listen, you better, not, you better not transgress and defraud your Christian brother or sister sexually. And listen to how he continues. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. The Lord does not take it lightly when we take advantage of one of his own. Sin's promise, sexual sin's promise of secrecy is a mirage. The story finishes by reminding us that these were in fact the tactics she used. Verse 21, with her many persuasions, this is the approach she took, she entices him, With her flattering lips, she seduces him. There, folks, are the typical tactics. Aggressiveness, rationalization, flattery, sensuality, and secrecy. Be on your guard. That's how sexual sin will come to you. There's no difference. So we've seen the naive victim, the cunning seducer, the typical tactics... Finally we see the tragic end Verses 22 and 23 Verse 22 says suddenly He follows her Suddenly he follows her He had been indecisive All this time He he hasn't given in But as she continues the onslaught Of her smooth Seductive words He just suddenly gives in And then Solomon provides us with Several powerful word pictures here of the tragic end of sexual sin. Notice the word pictures. Verse 22, as an ox goes to the slaughter. Without thinking, he obediently follows her to her house, which turns out to be the slaughterhouse, where he will give his life. Verse 22, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool We should probably follow the ESV and several other translations that change this Hebrew expression, which is a little unclear, to this. As a stag or deer is caught fast or steps into a noose. This adds the idea of being caught in a trap. And that fits with what comes next in verse 23. Until an arrow pierces through his liver. The hunter arrives where the deer is caught in the noose and shoots a fatal arrow into the trapped deer and the victim's naivete is fatal. The final picture is in verse 23. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. This picture's how quickly it all happened. This guy's just out for an evening stroll aimlessly, strolling through life, wide open, unaware, unguarded. Do you see the common denominator that doomed these animals in these illustrations and this naive young man? The ox, the deer, and the bird were all ignorant of the danger, and tragically, so was this young man, and that's what Solomon doesn't want you to be. Ignorant of the danger, unaware of the tactics. So because he was, he walked into the slaughterhouse, he stepped into the noose, he hurried into the trap, because just like those animals, he didn't know it would cost him his life. Now in verses 24 to 27, with the story concluded, we come to the epilogue. Solomon turns to admonish his sons, and to admonish us, his readers, as well. Verse 24, now therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. You see, what Solomon wants us to do is realize that the drama we have just witnessed could easily become one of us. You could be the victim in this story. Any of us could. And so in light of that, he wants to equip us. He wants to to prepare us. And so he provides us in the concluding verses of this chapter with three lines of defense against sexual sin. Three lines of defense. If you will embrace these, it will guard your heart. It will guard you and protect you from sexual sin. Three lines of defense. Number one. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Verse 25. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Your best defense against sinning with your body is to start by guarding your heart. Don't allow the control center of your soul to be attracted, to turn aside to her ways. Don't allow your heart to turn aside notice how he puts it to desire her patterns of behavior chapter 6 verse 25 puts it this way do not desire her beauty in your heart Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 28 warns us about looking to lust it all starts what goes on in your heart the battle for sexual purity for your sexual purity begins in what happens In your heart In the the control center of your soul The person you are I want you to look again John mentioned this verse last night But I want you to turn back to chapter 4 And look again At verse 23 I don't think there is A more important proverb To fit this issue of sexual sin Than this one Watch over your heart with all diligence. In in Hebrew thinking, the heart, I've said it several times, is the control center of your soul. It's where you think, it's where you feel, have emotions, it's it's where you make decisions. It's you, it's the real you. He says, watch over your heart. The, The Hebrew verb watch here means to stand guard. Now, there's a bit of ambiguity there because it could mean that you should restrain your heart. You should treat your heart like a prisoner. Don't let it, what it wants to, how it wants to express itself out. Stand watch over it in the sense of keep it under control. Or it could mean to watch over your heart in the sense of protecting it against external enemies. I think Solomon means both. Stand guard over your heart with all diligence. Keep it in check and protect it from those who would attack it. With sexual sin, we have to do both. What's going on in your heart? Sexually. What goes on between your ears? It's so important. Why? Verse 23 goes on to say, Far from it, From your heart flow the springs of life. Let me tell you two things about your heart. Number one, what you think about, how you feel about things, the decisions you make inside that other people don't see, that should tell you who you really are. You know, people all the time, I heard it just this week in the news, somebody did something that was gross and sinful, and what did they say? Oh, well, that just wasn't really me. No, it started in the heart. That's what Jesus says. And the deeds just come flowing out of the heart. It is really you. But even before the deed happens, if I could know what goes on in your heart, and this is what the second half of verse 23 is saying, not only does your heart show who you are right now, but your heart also determines the course or direction of every area of your life in the future. So if I could know what's going on in your heart, I could fairly well predict where you'll be in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Because from your heart flow all the streams of your life. The direction the course is set. So guard your heart, guard it sexually. If you don't guard your mind, if you let your eyes wander and you let your mind concentrate on things it shouldn't concentrate on, you're headed in the direction, guard your heart. A second line of defense against sexual sin, verse 25, is stay away. Do not stray into her paths, like this young man did. Run from sexual sin, both literally and in your mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18 says flee immorality run away from immorality. You know, at times the best way to deal with s- sexual temptation is to leave leave the place of temptation like Joseph did. If you're home alone and that's the place of temptation for you, go find a Starbucks to work in. If it comes from another person, run, don't walk. Sometimes it means you need to leave the place of temptation. Sometimes it means you, you just need to stay away. Stay away from people and places that tempt you to sexual sin. Proverbs chapter 5, notice verse 8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Stay away. Staying away, I think, also implies you need to make it hard to sin. Romans thirteen fourteen. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. That, that expression in Romans thirteen literally has the idea of setting the table for sin. A lot of people set the table for sin in their lives, and then they're, you know, they're asking God, why isn't He helping them overcome the sin in their lives? Don't make provision for your sin. Cut off all easy access to sin. Make it hard to sin. Get rid of those apps if they're the ones that tempt you to sin. Add whatever apps you need to or software that provide internet protection and accountability. Jesus said in Matthew 5, don't ever forget this, Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, cut off your right hand and pluck out your right eye. He's talking about lust. You know what he's saying? He's saying be willing to get radical to deal with your sin. Do whatever you have to John Owen the Puritan I love the way he said it be killing sin or it will be killing you the third line of defense here in chapter 7 in verses 26 and 27 is remember the consequences Solomon reminds his sons he reminds us look look at where this goes for many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain. Her house is on the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. You know what Solomon is saying? He's saying, Sexual sin and the seducer by which it comes are both deadly. I think Solomon is here telling his sons listen, think about the consequences, rehearse the consequences of sexual sin. One of the premarital books that I I go through with people in my church who who are planning to get married has a chapter in it about staying faithful to your spouse and the author even suggests that you write out the consequences of sexual sin. Whether you do that or not, don't forget them. Rehearse them. You understand what sexual sin does? It destroys God's design for marriage. It can destroy every meaningful relationship, including that with your spouse and eventually with your kids if God allows. It puts you at risk of sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancy. It cultivates a pattern of lying and deception. It plants images in your mind that will last a lifetime. It destroys the trust of all of those around you. It produces real guilt before God and a guilty conscience. It robs you of the assurance of your salvation and raises serious questions about the reality of your faith in Christ if it's an ongoing, unrepentant pattern. It alienates you from God. It exposes you to the discipline of the church and to God's discipline, including serious illness and even death. And folks, there are consequences to sexual sin beyond this life. Go back to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 20. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. There are two implications there. One of them is for this life. You know, when people sin sexually, there's no lightning bolt from heaven. No. It happens like verse 22 says. God does judge. God brings the consequences of sin. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held the cords of his sin. God just lets that person get deeper in the pit they have dug. He lets sin become more enslaving in their lives because that's what they wanted. But these verses also hint that there's judgment beyond that. Verse 21, God knows, he sees, He misses nothing, and God is a God of perfect justice. In that great self-revelation of himself, in the book of Exodus, you remember he says that he will by no means, he will by no means clear the guilty. In Ephesians chapter five, verse six, Paul tells us that sexual sin is one of the reasons the wrath of God is coming on this world. He hates it. It violates everything good that he created for marriage and our sexuality. A pattern of sexual sin is the road to hell. But for many of us here, we're believers. So what should we learn here? Number one, take your own lust seriously. I think we're tempted to think that because we're not acting out on that sin, it's okay. Jesus didn't say so. Matthew 5, 29, tear out your right eye, cut off your right hand to battle lust, or he says that's far better than your whole body ending up in hell. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, lust is a serious thing, and you better put your entire energy toward battling it, and you better be willing to get radical to deal with lust in your life. Don't take lust... Carelessly Take sexual sin Seriously I read it earlier 1 Thessalonians 4 The Lord is the avenger When Christians transgress And defraud one another sexually Now that's all the bad news And it is bad news It's intended to be bad news Remind yourself the consequences Of sexual sin But what if you've been involved in sexual sin In the past Well, here in Proverbs, we have hope for you. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find God's compassion. That promise is rooted in the very character of God, and it anticipates the promises of the gospel. What if you are involved right now in a pattern of sexual sin in your life, an unrepentant, ongoing pattern of sexual sin, it really marks you, it describes you, it's who you are. If you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ, he will forgive your sin, and he will make you as clean as he is. I love 1 Corinthians 6. It has both the good and the bad. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here's who's not getting in. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, effeminate being the the passive side of the homosexual relationship, homosexuals being the, the aggressive side, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you talking about sexual sin, he said, this describes what you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. If you have repented of your sin, if you put your faith in Christ, then that sexual sin is washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and God sees you tonight. If you have repented and turned from that sin, he sees you as perfectly pure as Jesus Christ who never had a moment of lust not one sexual sin that's the gospel let's pray together Father thank you for the wisdom of this amazing chapter forgive us for not having mined its treasures before. Forgive us for not appreciating its value. Forgive us for not following its commandments. But Father, I pray that after tonight, we would embrace your wisdom. Lord, arm us, guard our hearts. Help us to guard our hearts as as we've been admonished here. Help us to stay away to consider practically how we can avoid the, the end of this young man. And Father, I pray that you would help us to rehearse the consequences of sin. But Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that washes away every stain. We are all In need of that grace and are so grateful. We love you. We want to serve you. We want to live wise, sexually pure lives, caring for this treasure of human sexuality that you've given us and using it as you designed it as an amazing picture of the unity of a man and a woman and even. The closeness of Christ in his church. Father, we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name.